Hey, 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 welcome to another version of the Pastor Duke podcast. I have another blessing for you, my listening audience. Thank you for being one of about 4,000 people a week. I can't imagine how God is using the podcast to be a blessing, and it's all about you who tune us in. But I have with me here today in our little makeshift studio at God's little campground in Ghent, New York, uh, my friend and Andrew, I'll call him Officer Andrew for uh, security reasons, <laughs> New York City undercover cop. We're going to talk about probably the greatest tragedy of uh, my generation, uh, 9-11, and all of us uh, who are, say, 30 years old, old and up, we remember where we were on that fateful day. And so, Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. This is and, awesome. Uh, we did a podcast together earlier, kind of introduced 9-11, the sequence, but you have a whole lot more on that event. And so uh, I'm just going to turn it over to you and just uh, start in, and I'll interrupt you yeah. <laughs> when I think it's appropriate. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, things came to light as time went on. Because just to give you a bearing of time, uh, 9-11 happened, and from there it was like a blur. Um, I remember things going on down there. They have a ceremony. People come down. You hear the bell ringing. And I remember at one point someone leaned over and go, what's going on? Because we were in charge of the cleanup. And uh, they said, oh, it's a one-year anniversary. I went, what? One year? And then the same thing happened for the second year. So... Talk about blurs and time flying by and also on standstill. That was a a big chunk of uh, my life during that time. Just to give you a little background just on why we were there so long. At one point, uh, we were regulating the private carting industry for New York City. The gambling boat at a gambling boat at that time, the Hunt Point meat market and the Fulton fish market. So we were watching them and regulating them against organized crime. So a lot of the people in the carting industry had territories and they were all broken up into five boroughs and it was five crime families and they each had pieces of each one of the boroughs and, and uh, the location, regardless of the business that was there, the location was owned by a mafia territory, and uh, tributes had to be paid back and forth. And that was uncovered, and uh, they went to regulating it. You needed a license to haul carting, uh, private carting garbage out of the city. So when it got regulated, they kicked out a big portion of the bad guys, the guys that they can prove were in the mafia and, and doing organized carting. So um, a big chunk of them got kicked out of the city and they gravitated towards Long Island because there was no regulations there. So imagine all the a big chunk of bad guys with their names couldn't be on the businesses. So they kind of pushed them back a little bit. But just imagine all these people no longer doing business or going to the city. Which brings me to the point, um, day three after the collapse first two days, we were looking through rubble and looking for survivors, and everything was in disarray, and nobody really knew exactly coordinating what was going on as far as what are we going to do here with this. 
and the rest of us are lining up to give blood. You got to do something. And the outpouring, I say on day one, of course, for every evil, you see the good on the other side. I remember walking out of a dust cloud just to where it was a little more clear air. And there's a guy in a food truck from Rhode Island giving out water and food. Blew my mind. Just totally like, wow. The response of humanity in stark contrast of the evil that was going on. And, and uh, I've always heard it put good and evil run on parallel tracks and often arrive about the same time. Collide in the same time. Yeah. So uh, that was evident all around. But day three, the first load, because we had to decide what are we going to do with everything here? How are we going to clean it up? We have to go through it. There's people missing. There's things everywhere in this debris. I'll give you, a, a, for instance, it was 110 stories. Each floor was three foot thick of cement and about an acre. So when that pancake collapsed, everything turned to dust. So when you find, you know, you have office chairs, desks, phones, lights, equipment, just on everywhere, you would find a piece of a keypad of a phone or a, a small piece of debris. You would, and everything else turned to powder. So um, it was very hard finding survivors, parts of things to identify, that type of stuff was going on. So everything had to be gone, gone through. So we came up with where could we put all this to sift through it and look at it. And uh, uh, part of the cooperation of enforcement was uh, sanitation police. And we knew that uh, the Fresh Kills landfill had been closed and it was no longer receiving anything, but it was a huge facility in a big area. So we were going to have things trucked over there so they could sift through the debris and uh, also barged over. So uh, that was the, the one thing that we figured we could do uh, in, a, in the short term, which has ended up being that's the only thing that was done. Um, so all these things had to be barged and shipped over. So the first two trucks that left the city off of the pile to go to the landfill were sanitation trucks. The third truck was a volunteer truck. All these equipment and trucks showed up from all over the city, tri-state area, but mostly from Long Island of equipment. A lot of these trucks that showed up were all the people we kicked out of the city. Oh, my. And then I started, like, we got a phone call saying that all these guys are showing up. They're posing as good Samaritans. To drop the trucks off. It's always multifaceted. It's never one thing. But uh, one of the things were, get all your equipment there. They know it's going to go to what they call Blue Book. The federal government will take this over and pay everybody according to the Blue Book for their equipment. So if you have equipment there and it's being used, you get paid 12 hours a day for each piece of equipment that's there. If you make a sub-company and lease the equipment back to your other company, it's a leased equipment, you get paid 24 hours a day. And oh. if you drop a crane off, they were getting $125 an hour. For 24 hours a day. For all the equipment they owned is sitting all over the streets in the city. And uh, a lot of that equipment, you don't use cranes for, for cleaning up debris. That's for construction. Destruction, yeah. they use grapplers. So you saw cranes everywhere. Didn't need them. So, but they're uh, getting paid. Getting paid. So that was one type of uh, thing that we started to see. The other thing was that 
loads were being stolen, the third truck that drove off the pile didn't go to the landfill. They detoured and went to a separate location. Some of them were in Long Island, some were in Pennsylvania, some were in New Jersey. And they took 80 tons to 120 tons of steel and they dumped it in junkyards and they took the metal to sell the metal. Now, I had been involved in a, a case with stolen cars and a lot of that was getting processed as steel. So I knew the true value of the steel that was being sold. They would pay 30 cents on the dollar when you went in and junked your car. They were getting a dollar cash per pound. So uh, when there's 250 million tons of steel, you could do the math. So uh, we found a couple of people that had taken the steel and were sifting through it and taking the gold and rings and jewelry and cash that they could find and also the steel, and they were selling it. So they were steel, they were gray robbing. So we had cases down there, and we were surveilling and monitoring the removal of all the debris 24-7. So we were there for a couple of years. And, of course, you get into bids and contracts on this company is going to remove this or clean up this building or do that. And there's a lot of bid rigging and your typical corruption involved in that. So there's a lot of bad stuff going on as well as the volunteers and the good cleanup. So it was a very complex situation. You know, it reminds me of the words of Jesus when he was speaking of the conditions of society when he would return he said it would be as the days of Noah where men's hearts were evil continually. And you have the great, great perhaps the greatest tragedy of, of, of my generation. And uh, you see all the good and the people rising up and giving blood and standing in line and, and sending money and helping and creating uh, funds for uh, the children of uh, firefighters and people who were lost in 9-1. You got all this tremendous humanitarian good, but... You were the guy that was overseeing all the bad. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and it even gets worse than that because you see uh, the politics kick in on top of it, which makes it very disheartening and discouraging when you have local DAs just looking for headlines, not looking to prosecute, just want to splash. You have Washington directing uh, things that go on or who gets what contract and where and it's very disheartening when you see the line, the level of corruption going from uh, local senators straight through to Washington, coming back and benefiting crime families. Um, it, it's just, it, it's discouraging. But that's the world we live in, and we constantly fight evil. So uh, we didn't uh, put it this way. I, I made my voice known as best as possible, and a lot of people didn't like it. And uh, all the guys we work with, including some of the bosses, just let me go. And credit to them. They, you know, what had to be said was said and had to be done was done. You mentioned, Here we uh, are. <laughs> you mentioned district attorneys. And I've, in the bigger view that has gone on prior to 9-11 and ever since 9-11, my understanding is that George Soros has funded a lot of district attorneys and uh, they have an agenda that is very much different from the simple justice that we would hope that uh, district attorneys oh. would be fighting for. Yeah, I could give you, this could be a whole nother podcast, but uh, I can give you a quick glimpse into what happens politically 
Um, we get pushed to do cases. We find out corruption and the DAs want to know every little thing. When I say DAs, I'm not talking the local level ADA, but they're involved as well in, in wanting to know how things operate because they got to prosecute it. But you get up a higher level of DAs and the district attorneys themselves and U.S. attorneys, you get in, into the midst of that level. They want to know about the corruption. How did the crime families work? What happened? Uh, for instance, uh, the World Trade Center. I think they were paying uh, big, big money to remove their garbage. I think it was $85 a cubic yard. That's a little dumpster. And to get rid of it commercially, when it went to um, the Trade Waste Commission, which is now called the Business Integrity Commission, because <laughs> it sounds better to the people being monitored. Yeah, the names they put on things are oftentimes the exact yeah. opposite of what yes. is happening. So um, when they put a cap at $14, I think, it was per cubic yard to remove garbage. You couldn't go higher than that. Through fair market and open market and people coming in, it never went above $12.20. So the difference between the twelve twenty and the previous $85 is what they called the mob tax. And it came to about $2 billion a year. And uh, so there's a lot of money there. But it was being paid for years and years. And some of the people in the political sphere in the, in the city, and they recognized that. So when they took it over and controlled it and regulated it, it's a good thing. But when you know how much money could be made and what's there, they ended up being today, I believe, worse than the mob was. And uh, you will see that um, they'll come in and they'll fine and pay fees and add these things on to people doing the business currently. And you'll see that they're getting hit with those excess fees that they know is out there in the world. And uh, they're collecting them. So they become almost as bad, if not worse, than uh, the people they kicked out. So you, you see that happen. It's, uh, it's saddening, but that, you know, that's the world we live in. So one level of corruption is exposed, dealt with, <laughs> but another level, uh, another layer of corruption is always there waiting to kind of step in. When there's a void, people yeah. will step in. You see that even with the DA's office, I've seen things that happen that were just uh, outright corruption when you see people wanting to you know, get arrested and search warrants done, million dollars is seized, person's going to go to jail, the attorneys meet with the district attorney and the deputy DA's and they sit down and discuss the client's uh, you know, jail term and what he's going to do and the, the DA will say, well, he's got to do time. He's got to do five years, seven years. And uh, they say, well, what if he only, he can only, he can't do time. Well, how about three years and a $200,000 fine or $250,000 fine? All right, let's cut to the chase. How about how much will it cost me for no jail time? Oh, we'll keep the million dollars we seize. Okay, deal. And that's how things get settled. And then the million dollars goes to the office. To fight crime. So everybody gets bonus checks in the DA's office for the next couple of months so that money's used up working overtime. You know, it sounds legit. Is it? I don't know. 
let's see if we can get someone to prosecute that. Oh, wait, they are the prosecutors. <laughs> and on and on. and on it goes. Now, you were committed believer um, facing this stuff. I find myself as a pastor dealing with a lot of the, the yuckiest things that are happening in society. We, yeah. We've had uh, child abuse realities uh, surface in our young people's small groups. Uh, all of a sudden, a child gets comfortable, 12 years old, 13 years old, and speaks openly of uh, sexual abuse that's happening in their home. And then all of a sudden, our small group leader is like, oh, no. Oh, yeah, that we find out about it, but it gets so complicated. And we just have a, a steadfast rule. We upline immediately. It mm-hmm. goes a directly to the pastor, the back pastor directly to the board. And as we're notifying them, we are calling the local police. We take the child in and we get it into the hands of the authorities immediately. And as we do, a whole bunch of really guilty, filthy people get ready to kill us mad. Yeah. And yet here we are just trying to lift up Jesus and trying to meet the needs of children and uh, all of a sudden you think you're just, a, you know, just serving the Lord in my local church, working with the middle school girls. The next thing you know, you're getting death threats. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you're, 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 somebody kills your cat or your dog and uh, your, your mailbox is uh, firebombed. And uh, so, boy, I'll, I'll shut up for a we, minute. We, we've <laughs> Jump take, in, help me, man. We've taken that as a badge of honor sometimes when we up on wiretaps of wise guys and... Uh, you hear them talking about uh, contracting killers for us because we're causing too much trouble for them. That's that's like, hey, we're affecting it. <laughs> so we, we, we've recorded those. Yeah. Jesus says we're salt and we're light. And uh, I just uh, go back to our, our original topic. I'll circle back around yeah. to, to 9-11 because... Uh, living in New York, and I mean, you're in the city. This is like your, this is where, this place, you're where you work. It's, right, it's right. your neighborhood. Uh, I'm upstate, and yet even all of us upstate knew somebody that were in the towers. Yeah. Yeah. We had a, a RPI, Wrestler Polytech Institute uh, College, uh, just minutes from our church. And one of the students there, Christopher McKee, had gotten saved. It was a very faithful minister in our church probably will listen to this podcast he's an elder in his church in australia today christopher just a great christian man and uh he was a a young believer and uh, his mom worked uh like on the 93rd floor of the the first tower that went down and i get him mixed up now but in her tower uh, where she worked nobody over like the 78th floor survived and she worked at the 93rd floor so he was all day long waiting getting bits and pieces of information tries to call can't get through and he just thinks all day his mom is is dead and it was just horrible we were all praying for her and and praying for him and just i mean you remember that first day it was around one o'clock in the morning he got a phone call from his mom for the second time in 27 years she was late for work her Mm -hmm. alarm did not go off she was late, and the train normally would drop her off right at the towers, but uh, it, that the, the subway took her only to the next stop before she got out, and she saw the building mm-hmm. on fire, and she just had uh, this overwhelming thing that I should have died. All my workmates died. Right. I should have died, but I didn't die, and in, in, she went into this guilt of yeah, survival yeah. guilt. It, you, 
you hear stories constantly, and it became very apparent very quick. The only stories you're ever going to hear are those stories because they're the only ones left to talk about it. So you only hear the survivor stories. I should have been at work. I wasn't. This happened. I spilled coffee. I had to change my clothes, and my car broke down. Those are the survivor stories that you're going to hear because the rest that's the them. only ones you get to hear. I never once thought of that. So it's a different perspective. And, and you learn that quick when you start hearing story after story, and it's the same story. That's awesome. It's an awesome story. They made it. Uh, but what do you do? What you got left with your life? That's the question that will come. Um, and, and those that, that didn't make it, and you remember what they've done, and uh, where are they? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's the question. And then what do you do when you got left? We often talk about, oh, this is the end times. You know, Jesus is coming back soon. You can look at the times. It's plain to see what's going on. Um, you just wait? No. You do your best you can with what the time you have left here. And I always said if uh, you look at the, the true giants in the Bible, you look at the heroes and you say, wow, I wish I was around when they were there. And then when you think about it, they're all up in heaven, a great cloud of witnesses looking down going, I wish I was there now. Mm-hmm. And if we look at it through that perspective, what can we do now? It's our time. Yep. We need to leave it all on the field as, yes. as they who we honor and respect as our spiritual heroes. We have our opportunity as well. And that, that came very apparent to me, just the perspective thing. I was looking, we read a book, uh, Jonathan Kahn and uh, The Harbinger. Oh, yeah, one of my favorite books so, ever. So he puts a perspective on things. Um, but one of the things struck a chord with me. Uh, he talks about how uh, in Israel, and when they weren't following, and they had consecrated Israel, and they prayed, and uh, they prayed at that ground. And when judgment came, when they weren't following the Lord, and, and it was a wake-up call, and it was a short hit of judgment, and a calamity comes. Yeah, the Assyrians attacked, and uh, as a warning call, he calls it a harbinger. Right. And it was a warning directly from God, and they sort of kind of knew it. It's like but, a wake-up call. But they didn't stay awake long, did they? No. They went right back. So, But where it happens is interesting. He puts a perspective on it. Where was the consecration ground? Where did they pray and make a covenant? And then where did they swear allegiance to follow God and bless the nation? That's the consecration ground, and that's where the judgment strikes comes right there which was interesting because then he says there's a mystery the united states was founded in in god and his beliefs and to honor him and to worship him and bring glory it's in the mayflower compact it's in our declaration it's in the constitution on every coin in my pocket and, in god it, we trust it's it's right there so if you know where the ground was consecrated was it consecrated well george washington was sworn in as president yeah, just down on Wall Street. That's that's the mystery. Where where is where was the Capitol? It wasn't Washington D.C. then. So New he's sworn in on Wall Street, and then they walked down the street, up the street to a little, little hill, right, up to a little chapel. Yep. And uh, he swore and he prayed right mm-hmm. after his inauguration. And one of the things I don't have in front of me, but it says, "May the propitious smiles of heaven be on us." 
as long as we follow your ways. I'm just paraphrasing. And he's, he prayed. and That was his prayer. Right on the front steps of the church. Now, that church is there, and uh, it's no longer the front. The back is now the front, and, the, and what was the front of the church is the back. And he said, if we could find out, we'll solve that mystery. But that little church was the church that didn't get touched in the collapse at ground zero. And it's just a matter and, of and, a few feet and, away. Just and the, the sycamore gets more detail later. But the sycamore tree that was there, uh, a beam had fallen from the towers, hit the tree and blocked it from hitting the church. And, and the church was spared. But that church owned ground zero. They owned the trade center. Where those buildings were built was the consecration ground. That's where everybody gathered in front of the church, and that's where the prayer was. So, as And you just picture George Washington, the story I heard that they walked arm in arm yes. up Wall Street. It's only a block right up the, the street. It's not really a hill. It's just it's, slightly it's, upgrade. Yep. And then you have the big Episcopal church there at the corner of Wall Street, and next to that is the chapel and at the back side, which was the front side of the chapel Correct. then, George Washington, the f- we say the founding father of our country, bowed on his knees in public and prayed that prayer of dedication. Of and the, that is the, the spot. Yep. That is the spot where that judgment came. And it's more eye-opening to me and resounding to me is reading this when he writes it because when the dust cleared... I was standing in the midst right on that spot and the dust was swirling and cinders are burning. And now at the time you're standing there, you don't know. I have no idea of the story. Oh my goodness. I just, I just got I, goosebumps. And I'm standing there and there's not a soul in sight. It was an eerie, it was like standing in the midst of hell without being in it. It was like a piece about me and I'm just standing. It was eerie, calm, cinders blowing around fire raging in the background dust everywhere and not one soul inside just cir- just circling around looking and it was very surreal and reading the story i realized that's where i was standing and it just blew my mind standing on the spot where judgment fell as god promised judgment to those who knew him, the Bible says the nation that forgets God will be turned into hell. And you, here you are in the providence of God, in the midst of Andrew, it. in the midst of it, on the very spot where they were praying. And it is supernatural, in my view, I, I, I think this not quinky-dinky stuff, that that chapel did not fall. No. It, I mean, it just... It was just spared, just one of those and, God and things. And it became a center for those working at the site to go in and get relief, and they'll give you a meal, and you could just ask for prayer, and there's tons of people coming in from outside praying over everybody, and it one was of a our source of comfort. One of our associate staff pastors went down and spent the week, the first week. He headed down that day mm-hmm. just to uh, give himself to whatever the spiritual needs were. Yeah. And he stayed in touch with the church, I mean, almost hourly as he served down there. And he was he was one in that uh, yeah. chapel. Is that St. John's Chapel? I, uh, yeah. I, yeah. It's called St. John's I Chapel. St. John's. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I, I want to switch just for a moment uh, from the, the spiritual to the physical. Mm-hmm. You're standing there. Do you have a mask on or what? We had nothing with us. We had nothing with it. I had a pair of sunglasses. That was about it. But it, it was every day. Nobody had anything. We saw people coming uh, from federal government. It's just as weeks and months and days and they're going on. And they would set up air test equipment. And they would always set it up like outside of the smoke, mm-hmm. so to speak. You look on the clear side, on the northwest side. As you have a northwest breeze coming, you you have them set up over there testing the air. I'm like, yeah, it's beautiful over here. Yeah, yeah. before it goes over the top <laughs> of yeah, the site. Yeah, so they would give, oh, it's it's clean. Did you have any uh, ill health effects from it? Yeah, uh, I ended up, uh, it was interesting. Uh, everybody I work with, I think, well, just everybody I work with had came down with something. A bunch of people had cancers. Some of them died already. Uh, some have really bad breathing disorders, uh, but everybody ended up with something, a lot of different cancers. Uh, where I went, I went to every location because we had cameras up all over the whole grounds, 24-hour surveillance, and they needed to be changed. The tapes were uploaded and changed. Of course, yeah, we had VCR tapes. <laughs> <laughs> we were uh, recording everything. So they would change. The person that would... Fix the cameras from tech, tech server. He went around the same locations I did every day, just about. We both ended up with um, tumors on our eyes and uh, both required surgery. So I had that, uh, which I consider lucky compared to some of my coworkers. So uh, some of them haven't made it. And, you know, they passed away with cancerous tumors in their brain and testicular cancer. And, and so when 9-11, the second tower went down, the suffering and the death was not over. No, no. I think more people to date have passed since the collapse itself from the effects of it. Mm-hmm. And they were actually killed in the event. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, even so come, Lord Jesus. Yeah. I believe it was a harbinger. Uh, if you haven't read uh, Jonathan Kahn's book, is that spelled C-A-H-N? Yes. I think Jonathan yeah. Kahn. Yeah. He's a Jewish uh, rabbi who Mes- found Messianic, Messianic Jew. Jew. He knows Jesus in a personal way. He's a, he's a dynamic speaker, humble man, lives the gospel. Uh, he's he's the real deal, and he's all of his books are fantastic, but the yeah. harbinger would be really worth mind-boggling how God uh, kind of like what you see in the scripture it, it kind of gets superimposed over all of history he goes yeah. a lot into the years of jubilee he goes into the dates and times and financial striking of uh, of a nation and you look at the all it's it's kind of it like it fits going back it fits going forward you can't figure it out till it happens yeah but it, it it's kind of like we know there's an unseen hand guiding history Absolutely. and a lot of it he explained to us we know revelation 13 is coming mm-hmm. i remember reading revelation 13 in 1972 as a brand new believer in jesus and <laughs> read revelation 13 it sounds like star trek you know yeah. uh, an image of the beast like a statue that comes to life we'd probably call that artificial intelligence today and uh, it would be a cashless society no money there would be a marking system not on but in your right hand or in your forehead without the mark you can't buy or sell and now today we're talking about digital ids and cashless society 
and it's all here. And uh, in the providence of God, he let you be right on that front line. And uh, you saw the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And mm. how did that affect you spiritually to see the corruption that was just immediately upon it? It's being in law enforcement at the time. You're used they're, to it. They're there. It's there. And um, it's just it's just we as a team, I say we, we had a group of guys, everybody I ever worked with, especially this tight group that was working at the time, um, we knew we were fighting evil and we knew that we would do our best to hold it back and do what we had to, the best of our capabilities and abilities at the time to do what we needed. And you don't see that today it's more discouraged i mean i talked earlier on another podcast about uh, how corruption and uh things would seep in and the da's would uh just get charges so they could say oh he pled to a plea that was much less than what it was but we got the conviction today you're out before the paperwork's processed it's just just numbers going through. I mean, you're filling out a police report, probably take you a few hours to get everything done, and the person's already walked out the door. Catch and release, I yeah. say, is for fishing, not yeah. for not for uh, criminal justice. Yeah. Well, it's it's the same it's the same concept. You let them go, and they get bigger. Yep, a little leaven leaven at the yep. whole lump. My oh my, I. I never dreamed I would live most of my life in New York. I was just an uh, Ohio boy uh, sitting around the local park smoking a joint. And <laughs> an attractive girl came by from school, and her name was Jeannie, and she invited me to come to church with her. And I'm like, girl, I'll go to the dentist with you. She's hot. <laughs> she took me to church, and everything was going to change, and I was going to live the rest of my life in New York, not city. Uh, a lot of people don't realize there's a state that goes yeah. along with the city. You get that a lot. And, uh, <laughs> so I found out there's trees in New York and trout streams and mountains. And and you could drive seashore. six hours and never go through a city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's quite a state. Uh, I love New York. I love the land, the mountains, the seashore, the fishing, the hunting. I, I, I love the people. But the the government of yes, our state, the, the taxes worst. of our state, and, and our winters are a little long, too. But uh, it's where God brought me, and uh, I've seen many, many, many people come to know Jesus as Savior, yeah. so it's worth it. Yeah, we were just talking earlier, another talking about Barnard Polls, where they, they do studies, and they said the, the post-Christian area that's in, in used to be a Christian zone, Looking at the whole country, the greatest post-Christian area is the Albany region in New York in the whole entire country. <laughs> Barna survey said that as well. Yeah. The yeah. darkest part of, uh, of um, um, the darkest city in America is Albany, New York. And I think number two was Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah. So God brought me to the darkest city. <laughs> I guess I haven't done my job. But we've had a few thousand people come to know Jesus as Savior, and I'm very thankful for that. And uh, it was just kind of surreal to be in New York when 9-11 happened. And I remember I was hosting a, a pastor's fellowship. We had about 50 preachers from mostly New York, a couple from uh, New other places in New England that came. And we just 
have meals together and, and preach. And we were sitting there. I was eating a bagel with a pastor friend named Jim Edge, who was executive vice president of Boston Baptist College. He was going to speak that day. I was eating a New York bagel, which are the best, <laughs> and a cup of very strong, dark black coffee. As you would say, coffee. <laughs> yeah, but it's always the world's best cup of coffee. The signs in front of every store. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I, I don't argue that. And we're having coffee and bagels. And uh, one of the guys came in off the road, and they were listening to the radio and said, did you hear an airplane hit one of the Twin Towers? And I'm thinking, you know, a Cessna, whatever, right. uh, trying to fly too close. The wind blew him up. And then, of course, we found out... Uh, what was going to unfold that was that day was surreal but i think almost all of us remember where we were were when we first heard and it's interesting that meeting instead of preaching it kind of turned into a prayer meeting for america mm -hmm. and uh, we kept getting up uh, posts uh, from uh, our secretaries who were watching the tv and our youth pastor set up this giant 12-foot TV screen in um, our youth center and all the preachers. We just gave up on the meeting. We prayed and went went over and just watched till about lunchtime, had lunch together, prayed again, went home. My wife and I, uh, um, she was working at the time and they let her off work uh, sooner. And so she came home and I came home, the kids came home. Uh, and we sat there in front of the TV uh, for the rest of the day. We never even ate dinner. We never yeah. even thought about it. It was just so surreal, and you're just thinking, what's going on? You can't get away from it. You're learning a little bit new, and a survivor, and who lost this, and who did what. And in the meantime, immediately, all this corruption, how can we, how can we benefit from this tragedy? <sighs> Crazy. And never let a good disaster go to waste. Yeah. Things were in plans and working from the beginning, if not from before. I uh, remember that uh, Thursday night, two nights later, a, f a little restaurant owner in our church uh, called me and said, Pastor Duke, will you do a, a prayer vigil at our restaurant? And the place probably seated 25, and there were 110 people packed in this building. It was just like a can of sardines. We were packed in there, and I got to lead. And, and these are not church people. There was probably... 20 from our church and, and 90 not from our church and most of them from no church. But uh, we, we tried to bow as best we could. There wasn't even really room to bow, but as many as could did. We just bowed and we prayed. And there was a lot of people in that room that night that prayed and out loud, maybe the first time they ever prayed, prayed for our country. And I remember the next uh, Sunday at church. Now, the, the Sunday before 9-11, we had... Uh, 763 people. The Sunday after 9-11, we had 1,273 people. We grew by um, 450 people in, in one Sunday. And that week, we never locked the church. We just left the church open, and people came all through the night and went to the altar. We just had soft music playing, and, and people prayed. And that day, our attendance was it raised by 450 people. And I gave an invitation for people to come and pray. And with that Sunday, we had 27 people come forward to receive Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Uh, they were scared, and uh, there's a lot of people just committed their life to Christ that day. I had only unsaved people come forward. 
and our counselors took them down in quiet places so they could open the scriptures to show them, you know, why you need to be saved, how to be saved, and, and lead them in a, a prayer with all the understanding we could to receive Christ as their Savior. Then after we sang one verse, 27 people came and said, now if you uh, just wish to rededicate your life to Christ, Everybody. the whole church stepped forward 15 feet yeah. and bowed on their knees, and the music began. And it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. I had a baptism. We had like five people getting baptized. And so we kind of fought our way through the crowd because nobody would go back to their seat. They're just on their knees worshiping and singing and praying and weeping. It was more like a Pentecostal church, if you please, that day. So I got the people one by one into the baptistry, and they could literally reach out and probably touch 25 people. I mean, it was just completely packed in with people all around the baptistry and we baptize them and they get out and they're dripping water all over the people who are still on their knees and i you know i was like okay we'll sing another song and this and we'll dismiss the service we sang a, another song and nobody nobody left, nobody left. and so those uh, 1200 people just kind of bowed on their knees uh, as close to the front of the church as they could and, and the back of the church was empty but probably about two thirds of the way back. It was just people on their knees and we sang and somebody would stand and give a testimony and we sang another song and the church service lasted about almost an hour after we thought we were dismissing the service. When we finally did dismiss the service, there were people that wouldn't leave. They just stayed at the altar. And I thought, Oh my goodness, if we could just have a nation that would fear God and, and live, but I'll never forget that. Well, the next week our attendance dropped down to under a thousand mm. and two weeks later, we're right back to the 750 yeah. range where we Say were it, before. Right? Yeah. So God was sounding a warning, but I don't know. Yeah, as soon as the instant fear is gone, I'm right back to you. We could call it your old clothes, your default mode. What yeah. are you most comfortable in? They go right back to what they were yeah. doing. So, when the event hits, do you feel as an officer? Do you did you feel fear or awestruck or what? Just kind of go back to emotionally what you were thinking and feeling. Well, um, right off the bat, we knew. Well, are we under attack? Uh, what's going on? Uh, and then also kick in, you know, help mode. How am I going to help people? What am I going to Get survivors. I'm not gonna do so you're not that. thinking of self much, huh? No, no. And you get there, and then you, it, the overwhelming part was there was nothing you could do. Mm. There were no, I mean, you heard one or two people survive by getting blown from the air across the streets through windows of the stores. And, but in the midst of it, there was nothing. And um, like I mentioned in, on the other podcast, my partner was on the radio as it went down. He was, so he was the first person that they could, he was say, in, could say he was in the stairwell, 23rd floor, I believe, as it collapsed on him. And he was saying, it's coming down around us. And then the radio went dead. And how far into the day was it when you knew you lost um, your partner? Probably, well, I, I referred to it for so long as that night because it was black where we were the whole time. It was... Even though it was morning. Yeah. yeah. And it was a clear day. Yeah. Well, who knew? Not me. But uh, we always say that night, and uh, people go, what do you mean that night? You mean later on? I've got to rephrase it. You know, 
that day. Uh, later, some point during the day, we came out of the dark cloud part and we kind of mustered up and trying to get some more of the people we work with together. Um, the one thing that, that worked well for us was we had Nextel phones. And we used to call them click, click. <laughs> you hit it and it goes click, click. And you talk to the person. That was working. So we happened to be able to get in touch with some of us where we mustered up and got together. But at one point, we were in a clear area and somebody was driving through. I uh, saw my sister-in-law, uh, who was with a boss in a car, and they were driving down. And, and she stopped and just spoke to somebody from emergency services and was telling me that my partner was in the building and they were looking for him. So I knew instantly that, uh, you know, if he's in there, I'm going to take him out. Yeah. So. But he was the first that uh, we know of, and his remains came out the last. Wow. So two and a half years later, they identified some remains. And I think uh, we had a funeral for him in a service. Uh, I can't remember the timing, but it was, it was like a year later or somewhere in there. We did some type of memorial service, uh, but they actually didn't find remains. And I think they found his gun and a piece of his shield, if I'm not mistaken. But, um, yeah, it takes you – know, it wasn't, wasn't like you were going. You seen people all over the place. You saw nothing but dust and debris, and the fires burned inside it it was a lot of heat coming off the pile uh, i think it burned 183 days before it went out so i just have maybe one last question here and i i, I hear the dust the dust the dust wasn't this cement what you would think it would be rubble and crumble why why was it dust do you feel there was something going on there at 9 11 besides just the planes hitting do you think it was I've heard a lot of stories, and I've not studied it out a lot. My wife has studied it out more than me, and it just seems to be like there might have been some other foul play going on there. Don't know, and I, I don't know if I follow, uh, you hear about, oh, it's wired to blow and all these things. I, I don't know if I follow yeah, that at all. Yeah. I do know that from, like I said, three foot thick of cement, an acre on each floor, 110 floors, two buildings, turned to pulverize dust, cement dust, everything turned to powder and at one point we were walking down side streets and it'd be up to your knees of powder dust and you would see where people ran from the collapse they were running away blocks away there was nothing but shoes and sneakers all over the streets people ran out of of their their shoes shoes. everywhere not a few not a hundred two hundred thousands and thousands of shoes lined the streets because the resistance trying to lift your feet out of that couldn't stuff run quick enough was, they couldn't run quick enough and uh it just pulled those shoes right off of their feet it was just wow. it's it, it looked like a war zone when you went there that's how it looked I've, that's what i heard and then we searched for the black boxes from the planes and we were on that detail the first day or two and looking for survivors digging in the pile which was, seemed like it was uh, an endless task. Were there some survivors that? There were uh, a few, very few. I think one or two that I know of that came out of the pile itself that were trapped somewhere. I tried to get in the subway uh, right after it happened, and it had been cleared and chained shut uh, where I went. And uh, so I, that 
where would you go if there's a collapse? You know, go on the ground, you hide. You know, that yeah. was chained and people were evacuated already. Prior, uh, once the buildings got hit, they shut that down. But um, yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you for uh, joining with me uh, for this podcast. He, Andrew, has spoken for our uh, seniors group and church groups. If you, pastors, you uh, like to have a guest speaker come, uh, you can get a hold of me. I can get a hold of him. Uh, this guy will uh, be a huge blessing to your church. It'd be a blessing, especially to your men's meeting, law enforcement people. He's uh, got an incredible story. He's got, you've heard 1%. You just heard one or maybe one and a half percent on this podcast of what he's got to share. But we're in a spiritual battle. The Lord told us in the time of the end, perilous times will come and they are here. But uh, we know who wins in the end. That unseen hand guiding history is is God's hand. And uh, good and evil running on parallel tracks till Jesus comes and then the evil will be gone. He sets up his kingdom and we live forever. So thanks for joining us today. I know this has been a blessing to you. Uh, Bye-bye for now.